to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Hotel Bar Session. I'm Jason Reed, and (laughs) once again I'm joined by co-hosts Rick Lee and Lee Johnson, and this week we're going to be asking the question, what's your philosophy? But before we get to that, let's get to our drink orders and rants or raves. So Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting and raving about? Well, today I think I'm just going to have a summer ale. doesn't really matter whose it is, as long as it's one of those summer ales. And I am actually raving about something I recently discovered called Forgetify. So Forgetify is a site on the internet that only plays songs that have never been played on Spotify. And apparently there are (laughs) millions and millions and millions of these. So literally when you get on this website and press play, you are the first person hearing this song on the internet. And of course, like when you put a playlist on shuffle, you're going to get some winners and some losers. But just the idea that there are millions of songs out there that no one's ever heard. I, I love it. So check out Forgetify. And Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to continue having a local option outlogger. Local option, call us. We're waiting. (laughs) And today I have a rave within a rave. I am raving about the jazz singer Samara Joy. within that rave, I'm raving once again about the NPR show Fresh Air. Mm. Terry Gross just did an in-studio concert, an interview with Samara Joy, a young jazz singer just out of school. And my God, although the woman is in her 20s, she sounds like she smoked a a lot of cigarettes (laughs) and had a lot of brown liquor in her life. So check out Samara Joy. She's fantastic. What about you, Jason? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? So I'm just going to have an Allagash White, kind of a nice summer type beer. And I'm actually going to rant about, this is kind of sounds surprising and might be controversial. I'm going to rant about Cornell West. Uh And this is not about his candidacy for presidency, although I will say years ago, I heard Cornel West talk at Rethinking Marxism, and he gave, in my view, a better view of political change. He said, and talked about his role in the journal, first you have the journals, then the reading groups, then the unions and political organizations, and then political power. That made a lot more sense to me than socialism in one branch of government. But the real thing that I'm going to rant about is his editorial in the Wall Street Journal, co-authored with Jeremy Wayne Tate, in which he defends Ron DeSantis's education changes and says, yes, we should be talking about the classics of Western civilization. Mm. And to me, this is a huge misreading of what is going on. Mm. It might make sense tactically, but DeSantis is not serious about Western civilization, or he's serious about it in terms of (laughs) basically a loyalty oath. To look at what he's doing and think that we're going to be engaging the canon, reviving a great books program, making education about something other than career training, seems to be at best naive and at worst playing into the hands of DeSantis. So I'm just disappointed in Cornell West for this and thinks he's 
completely misreading the situation. But Brother Cornell, you're welcome on the show anytime. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I also appreciate a sub rant about Ron DeSantis. Nicely played. <laughs> so this week, like I said, it's our 100th episode. We talked a lot about what we're going to do to make the 100th episode special. And one idea that we talked about, we settled on, is, I mean, we do public philosophy here, but we want to talk about not so much our private philosophy, like the secret philosophy we hold on to, but the sense that when you do philosophy enough, you begin to develop your own philosophy, for lack of a better word. I know there's a tendency, I think, within the profession to treat this question of what's your philosophy as a hopelessly naive question. Like you go to a party and you say, teach philosophy. And if people don't run away when they hear that, they might ask, what's your philosophy? And it sounds very cheesy. You can't do this for a while without beginning to develop your own particular way of doing things, even though that way of doing things might not be what you publish on. And it might not be what you teach about because you're publishing on new stuff and you're teaching about stuff that you know serves the interests of students, I still think it's worthwhile to talk about our own particular philosophy. So that's what I want to talk about this week. In some sense, we do this every week. Yeah. What we do in this show is every time we take on a topic, we come to it with our own particular way of doing things, but we're going to be a little more explicit. And, and this is the part I'm really excited about, we're also going to try to describe each other's philosophical perspective. <laughs> and just for the record, for the 100th episode, my vote was that we do it from a bounty house, but we're going to do this. <laughs> and my vote was a whole episode on the metric system. <laughs> So to make this more fun, we're going to first reverse engineer each other's philosophy from their comments and interventions as we got to know them on the show. And you can play along at home, but we're not going to be able to hear you. <laughs> so first, we're going to start with Rick. I mean, I'll go first to describe Rick's philosophy. And I think that Rick and I are both what I would call apparatic philosophers. I got this idea from this interview with Alexander Matarone that's published in the Edinburgh book, where value bar system Matarone, you can't keep resolving everything that a philosopher says and making the system all nice and tight and neat. And Matarone says back to Ballybar, you can't keep just finding aporias and everything and finding these irresolvable <laughs> points of tension. And I do think that, you know, as we sometimes do on this show, and Rick does a very good job of this, is like when we talk about something like gossip or community, we find this point of tension where you want to say both a good thing and a bad thing, but the good thing and the bad thing are thoroughly intertwined. You can't separate them. And I think Rick and I both do this. I think Rick does this coming from Adorno. And I think for Rick, and my understanding is a lot of this has to do with the relationship between matters being outside of thought thought and matter. That's the original aporia from which everything else stems. Sometimes people think of finding aporias as being like really easy. Mm. The systematic philosophers see it as just playing around with words. It's actually really not that easy because you really want to find the true point of tension, not just this invented and made up one. Think of Rick as an aporetic philosopher, if that is a word, <laughs> stemming from his love of Adorno, but stemming from the original aporia that we try to think about matter, but matter exceeds thought. Mm. Wow. That's a very good description. I don't know if I'm going to be able to beat that, but I do want to pick up on one part of it. That is the apparatic. I was just thinking earlier when I was trying to imagine how I would describe both of your philosophies that 
the thing that sticks out the most whenever Rick is talking is that he's a on the one hand, on the other hand guy. And I think that like that might be the exact thing that you're describing. And for the listener, can I say that because Lee edits this podcast, it drives her crazy. <laughs> I mean, it is a thing. Well, as long as you do both hands, it's okay. As long as you do both right. and only two. Just sometimes a one-handed philosophy would be enough. <laughs> but I will say in broad strokes, I think that Rick is a materialist. I think he's not a vulgar materialist, but that he's a materialist. I think he's a socialist. Morally speaking, I think he's probably a closet Kantian. But I really think that he is a philosopher of aesthetics hidden in the body of a medieval philosopher. I think that he really does believe that art and poetry and comedy and tragedy tell us a lot more than straightforward arguments. Now, that said... This dude loves the ticky-tack details of medieval philosophy. (laughs) He likes to get all the way in the dusty, dusty tomes. So, yeah, I think that he's a very precise and careful thinker with a lot of hands. (laughs) (laughs) But they all come in pairs. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) It's interesting, Lee, because when you talked about aesthetics – At first, my immediate reaction was no fucking way. But Mm -hmm. as you were talking, I think you see something that I don't really see myself. I do hold out a hope, I think. I have a certain optimism about the role of art thought broadly in our contemporary world. And I have more optimism about that than I do about philosophy. That's for sure. So what do we miss, Rick? So the first two things I thought about when I would try to characterize my philosophy, and Lee, you really did suss out that I am not so closeted. (laughs) I am morally a Kantian or a quasi-Kantian for sure. Mm -hmm. But that leads into another aspect. I think I'm also fundamentally a rationalist. Mm. I don't think reason constitutes reality, but I think reason is a crucial tool we have first to figure out reality, but second to present our visions of reality to one another and hash them out together. So rationalism would be a big part of it. And I'm surprised neither of you said metaphysician. Oh, yeah. (laughs) How do we miss that, Jason? (laughs) Yeah. So I am always sussing out where being and reality lies in any thinker's thought. I'm always looking for the what is it question. But yeah, you both moved me quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rick, let's talk about Jason. Mm. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. So I think that Jason is, as he said, I wouldn't have put it this way. I would have said dialectical thinker. But I'm now convinced that there is a difference between being a dialectical thinker and being an apparetic thinker in that in being a dialectical thinker, one is looking at two truths that are contradictory and yet one is the condition for the possibility of the other and trying to figure that out. Whereas an operatic philosopher sees two things that are contradictory that have to be true at the same time. Thank you. Good night. And here are both of my hands. (laughs) And so I would change that you're a dialectical thinker into the fact that you're an operatic thinker. And while I tend to be much more of a metaphysical materialist in an odd sort of way, I think you always look at questions from a materialist point of view, 
that is, as I think you nicely laid out in our episode on materialism, socially oriented, real material conditions that make various things possible, including philosophies and so on. I also then think, taking a page out of Lee's book, you are, in an interesting way, a very filmic philosopher. Mm -hmm. Not just that you look at the world through film, but part of your social materialism is looking at various realities as if they were films. I think this is what makes you a really interesting thinker about various films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my first run at it. What about you, Lee? Well, I mean, I feel like you just have to start off at the top with Jason can bring Spinoza and or Marx to a conversation about <laughs> Turkey. You know? so, he is deeply committed to those thinkers and quite adept with applying their insights. I think the one thing that I would want to say that Jason maybe won't expect is that I really do believe that Jason is truly a historian of philosophy. I often tell my students when we read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, I often remind them, you know, he's in a jail without a library, right? right? All these citations in this text are in his mind. And I think Jason is one of the few people that I think could write a letter from a jail <laughs> like that. I think he just really retains quotes and information and can remember exactly where they're from. And that is a skill that I don't really have, but I think it is evidence of his commitment to the historical development of thought and the way that thinkers interact with one another. I think that Jason is also maybe, and I don't know that he would agree with this, but I think he's also maybe more of a moral relativist than he oh. would want to admit. But I don't know that I could say more than just that. I don't know that I could Jacuz. explain more than that. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think it's an accusation. I just think, you know, in moral philosophy, we tend to put people in the category of deontologists or consequentialists. And I don't think he's either of those, but I also don't think he's neither of those. So that's what I would say. Jason, how do we do? I think you did pretty good. First, Rick's point, this is going to sound really, really pretentious, but I'm going to say that I'm in the aporia between dialectics and aporetics. I'm torn between like resolving the contradictions and just treating the contradictions as they are, and I try to find that point of tension. Although the second thing that Rick said I definitely agree with, that as much as I might be interested in ontologies or metaphysics, philosophical systems to try to ground themselves, I always think that Whenever we do philosophy, we begin in the world in a social historical sense of the world, and that that's my starting point, mm -hmm. is that philosophical discussions always happen in a political, social, economic situation, and to lose sight of that is to lose sight of what's animating the question, I would agree with. It's nice to hear that I'm a historian of philosophy. That was surprising from Lee, <laughs> and I'm going to use that to pad over the moral relativism part. That's going to keep me up. <laughs> um, although, to go back to our episode on lazy relativism, the question of all relativism is relative to what? And I think that if I'm a moral relativist, I try to think about relative to history, power relations, and society. So I may be more morally relative because I'm always trying to think through. To go back to our previous episode on gossip, gossip, as I was saying then, that like people who utilize gossip as a way to do things, I judge it by do they have access to other institutions and structures? And sometimes for some people, gossip might be like in the case we talked about Me Too, etc. 
if it's the only weapon you have, then I understand why people would use it. Whereas other situations, Donald Trump, etc., using gossip seems like a overstepping if you have access to power. Yeah, I think that what you just did is playing out exactly what I mean when right. I say that you're a moral relativist, which is that when you say something is right or wrong, your explanation is not to justify it on the basis of a principle or an outcome. Your first explanation of why something is right or wrong is to situate it in its material, social conditions and sort of work out from there. And your rant at the top of the episode is another perfect example of that, where you're ranting <laughs> yeah. about Cornell West, not because he violated some moral principle, but because of the situation in which Ron DeSantis is making the claims he's making, and that in that context, it's immoral for Cornell West to make the claims he is. Yeah, you got to read the room. <laughs> <laughs> So now moving on to Lee, this is tricky because uh -oh. I think Lee in some ways plays her philosophical cards very close to the chest <laughs> in the sense that she's not one to name drop. Although I do think that one of the things I really get from Lee, and I got this before I even joined the show and I was listening, is that Lee has a real engagement with what's happening outside of philosophy. She seems to read broadly and like things that are happening in politics, technology, etc. But I think the one thing that really describes Lee for me is – she was saying it last time when we talked about, oh, the gossip show. You can't unring a bell. And I think to some extent, Lee is very much about the question of trying to unring bells. And I think she thinks about this in terms of her interest in technology, that there are certain things, once they happen, to deny that they've happened, that something has fundamentally altered our relationship to knowledge, our relationship to politics and society, to pretend like it hasn't happened seems like a fundamental mistake. And I think that one of the things I appreciate about Lee is that she's constantly reminding us that we're trying to unring bells or put cats back into bags. And in that way, she's very modern in the sense <laughs> that the, the modern is like you have no right to despise the present. You know, like you can't go back from here. And we have to look with clarity about what our situation is. And I think Lee is very much in tune to sense that like we have to stop trying to understand the present through the lenses of the past. Not to say she's not interested in philosophy in the past, but she recognizes that you have to think the current moment. And that's what I really think of when I think of Lee as someone who is constantly reminding us that we're sometimes trying to unring bells and put cats back into bags. And we'd be much better off hearing the bells that have rung even when they ring for thee and dealing with the cats outside of their bags. I can't imagine Lee ever putting a cat in a bag just to go on the record. No, I would never. <laughs> Let them all out. Because you raised this issue, I'm going to rephrase what I was going to say about Lee in the terms that Jason already talked about, because Derrida has a book called Operias. I think Lee is, I was going to say, a deconstructive thinker, and that's not always obvious. And I think deconstruction is yet a different way of dealing with operias. My colleague, Michael Noss, who's been on our show talking about hospitality, as he calls it in Deconstruction 101, the major concern is that when a text when a philosopher, well, since for Derrida, many things are texts that we don't normally think of as texts, I could just leave it as when a text makes claims, those claims are built on a structure that is usually binary and almost always exclusionary. And I think Lee's question almost always is, what's not being said here? What's being excluded but not being acknowledged as being excluded? 
And in that sense, I think she is almost always a deconstructive thinker. An example I have of that is Lee's concern that she's expressed many times throughout this podcast about accidentally enslaving intelligences or beings that are self-aware. There, Lee will always admit the obvious dangers that AI, for example, or robots can and do and will pose. But then comes the deconstructive question. What are we leaving aside? What are we leaving behind in making this definitive claim? Lee is a deconstructive thinker pretty much through and through. And in addition to that, I think that Lee's philosophy is grounded in and insists on being grounded in the actual present of people's lives. And undeniably today, that means the role that technology is playing, how technology is constructed. And that means we need to get in the weeds sometimes. We need to look at how algorithms function, look at how AI functions, and so on. And I think Lee's insistence on the importance of investigating technology is part of this larger insistence that we need to take people's actual lives seriously and perhaps begin philosophizing from there. How'd we do, Lee? I mean, you guys do better than I'm about to do. No, I think that all of that is right. Yeah, I definitely am a deconstructive thinker. And as Rick said, for Derrida anyway, you know, texts could be lots of things. They could be actual physical books, but they could be social systems, economic systems, cultural systems. So I do think that I am interested in finding the ways that systems have margins, how they produce remainders, how the manifest content is not always all that's there. So yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, obviously, since I made the turn to the philosophy of technology about well, gosh, it's been like 15 years now. I don't, so this is hard for me to say because, you know, I said a minute ago that Jason is really a historian of philosophy. I think that I am not. Of course, I was trained in a history of philosophy program. The history of philosophy is very important to me. That's how I teach. But I think as a philosopher that I'm more of a like what, you know, in the tech world they call futurist, <laughs> right? Like I'm, I like to make predictions more than I like to analyze arguments from the past. So I think you're both right that I am solidly anchored in the present, but leaning to the future and, and not to the past. I like to make predictions too. I like to predict what William of Ockham might have said. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the other hand... What he might not have said. (laughs) All right. So we've made the rounds here. I'm wondering if we could also ask the same question about Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast. Do you think our podcast has a philosophy? I mean, my guess is that listeners who've been listening for a while now would have a way of describing the podcast that is going to highlight consistent themes or whatever. But if HBS had a philosophy, what do you guys think it would be? I would start with one element that I think is central, and maybe this is too meta, but I think part of our philosophy is that there's no aspect of human experience that a philosophical approach cannot illuminate, try to make a bit clearer, and investigate the role it has in our lives. And so we've gone from very nerdy philosophical topics to talking about movies to most recently talking about gossip. (laughs) And I think part of our philosophy is not only can philosophy 
illuminate these areas, but in fact it does, and it's important that it does. You know, there's a famous quote by Antonio Gramsci that everyone's a philosopher. We have to destroy this idea that philosophy is a rarefied activity. And like a lot of famous quotes, people always forget the second part of it. <laughs> and the second part is that he says, but for most people, philosophy is baggage without inventory. It's like fragments mm. of sort of old folk tales, a little bit of religion, a little bit of science, etc. And that the task of philosophy is to think about where we get these different ideas from and to produce an inventory to transform that. And so I think when we take on these different topics from day to day, life, we're trying to take inventory of them and say, this is what's going on with this idea, and trying to show that there is a philosophy internal to some of these things, but often it is one riddled with contradictions, problems, tensions, etc., and that one could stand to have some sort of clarity about those tensions and contradictions. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I guess I would describe the philosophy of the podcast first and foremost as committed to the idea that there's a value to philosophy done in the vernacular, as they say, sort mm -hmm. of in common mm -hmm. everyday conversation that we don't have to be all suited up with our elbow patches and very serious <laughs> that you can be joking around, you can be having fun, you can be talking about whatever topic is on the table and not have to resort to the academic jargon, not have to resort to broad sweeping references to movements, you know, that we can in many ways work through things that are important to us by just talking them through as philosophers would if they weren't trying to play at being a philosopher. I think we also all really do fundamentally believe that most people are capable of understanding philosophy, of doing philosophy. Maybe they don't have the references, may not understand the jargon, but that it can be explained, again, in the vernacular, you know, in regular people language. I think maybe the other thing I would say about the podcast that if it had a philosophy, and then this is, of course, the nature of the medium, but I think all three of us really believe this, that philosophy is best done in conversation. Mm. This is a more productive way of doing philosophy than writing a book or writing an article. You know, this is what I love about this podcast is what I love about other philosophy podcasts. These kinds of conversations are ones that most people don't have often enough, including us, really. Yeah, right. Yeah, and the listeners aren't aware because we usually say this after we've stopped recording, but very often one of us will say, that was fun. Yeah. And part of our philosophy is that philosophy in this conversational style is enjoyable. It's a pleasure. Mm. I've had a number of experiences on the podcast where I've had to change my mind or I see a different point of view. And that's also just a lot of fun. It's really mm -hmm. pleasurable. So I think part of our philosophy is that philosophy doesn't have to be sad. It can be fun. Yeah. And I mean, for those who might be just joining or have only joined the podcast recently, again, the reason the podcast is called Hotel Bar Sessions is because this is a frequent part of academic philosophy conferences, which is that we sit in bad hotel air and drink bad hotel coffee all day with a bunch of stuffy people giving stuffy arguments. But then at the end of the day, we all meet up at the hotel bar to really get into the fun part, the interesting part of philosophy. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. 
If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So at the beginning of the show, I mentioned this party situation of someone asking you, do you have your own philosophy? And I remember a specific instance where someone asked me, do you have your own philosophy or do you just talk about what a bunch of other people said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that this is worth talking about because I'm going to say that's a false aporia right there. Because really, it's – or maybe this makes it true. Damn it. It's both. You guys, you guys. One hand. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'm going to tie one hand behind both of your backs. <laughs> but then we still each got one. I've got some empty bags here where the cats were. So let me put a bag over each one of your hands. <laughs> anyway, so what I was trying to say, and I'm not putting this in terms of hands. I don't want to now, though. Is that it is through studying other philosophers you begin to develop your own philosophy. I mean, a book that influenced me very early on when I was in grad school was Michael Hart's book, Gilles Deleuze, An Apprenticeship in Philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it's a book where he argues that in the 60s, when Deleuze was more or less starting out, he wrote these studies on Bergson, on Nietzsche, on Spinoza. What he was doing, Michael argues, is that he was writing these studies of these things, but he's also constructing his own philosophy from bits of all of them. And that's that philosophy that he later went on to develop and articulate in the books that he wasn't writing about other philosophers. And this idea of an apprenticeship, you learn how to think what you think by first spending a lot of time thinking about what someone else thinks. Mm-hmm. We have this you know, mantra of think for yourself, right? Where studying someone else seems like dogma or being subservient to someone else's thought and this idea that like, oh, I want to do philosophy, but I want to think for myself and just call up a blank page and start philosophizing. <laughs> First of all, when you do that, very often when people try to think for themselves, they end up just repeating, you know, it goes back to the Gramscian point about like baggage on inventory. They end up just saying what everyone else thinks Anyways, you need to study other philosophers to even know what it is you might think or what it is might be worth thinking. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. If one is going to develop a philosophy, one should definitely try to avoid reinventing the wheel. (laughs) You have to know what other philosophies have been developed and are out there and so on. I also think about the history of philosophy as a kind of training ground. So one could develop various tools of thinking, various ways of asking questions, look at the ways philosophers have developed what topics come to the fore. And, you know, you could learn to develop your own tools and your own instruments and gain a little bit of strength by reading and taking seriously the history of philosophy. I will also say for myself personally I don't know, maybe this is a bit of imposter syndrome, but I often think to myself, like, who the hell do I think I am developing a philosophy? I'm not Hannah Arendt. I'm not Kant. I'm not Simone de Beauvoir. Like, who the hell do I think I am? In addition to that, I think I can't say anything unless someone else has said it first, that I'm not, I don't know, big enough or I'm not important enough to say something unless someone else has said it first. 
And so I think that the history of philosophy is really important to developing one's own philosophy. All the while, I agree with Gramsci's point that we all do have a philosophy, at least point, that we are all capable of honing that, developing it, reflecting on it, and making it better and better as we go along. I think that probably most of us, when somebody asks, what is your philosophy, although no one ever, I mean, you know, people don't do that, but if someone were to do that, I think probably most of us would immediately go to identifying ourselves as a combination of large movements, right? You might say, I'm a materialist, or I'm an existentialist, or I'm a deconstructionist, or I'm a deontologist, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, none of those are my philosophy, right? I mean, just by attribution, I'm indicating that I didn't come up with deontology. Then when I think, well, but who does? does come up with those things. The way it happens is that it starts with somebody making a, not necessarily totally original, not like ex nihilo original, but making an interesting argument. And do I think that I've made interesting arguments that are somewhat original in my lifetime? Yes. Have any of them become movements? No. <laughs> so in that sense, it's hard to say what is my philosophy. Now, I'll also want to note just kind of sociological point that what I just described does happen more in analytic philosophy, which none of us are. That in analytic philosophy, it is frequently the case that when somebody makes an argument, they name the movement of their argument right. and then mm -hmm. identify themselves as the inventor of that movement or that argument. And I think it's just part of the fact that in continental philosophy, the history of philosophy is so important and that we understand ourselves as being in a conversation with philosophers and movements that are also in conversation with one another, that we don't tend to try to pick out, you know, whatever our philosophy is as separate from those historical moments, but always still in conversation with those historical moments. And I think that's what Rick was just describing when he was talking about the history of philosophy. So, yeah, I don't know that I would say that I have a philosophy, but I definitely could describe a stew that has ingredients that are relatively unique to me, that even my close friends and comrades in philosophy will not have all the ingredients in their stew that I have in my stew. Right. And so I do think I can distinguish my philosophy from Rick, your philosophy, or Jason, your philosophy. But is it my philosophy in the way that, you know, we would say deontology is Kant's philosophy? No. I suspect that each one of us insists on the fact that there is no one philosophy that is developed out of a fairly small set of principles that could give us a cogent true, coherent picture of reality, of human existence, of technology, of politics, and of art. That is, philosophy needs to be contextualized, and you need to bring the tools that are important for that area of philosophy. You know, the days of writing big philosophical systems like Hegel or even earlier uh, follower of Leibniz named Baumgarten has this ginormic system of philosophy that he can talk about all aspects of reality from just a few principles. I feel like each of us might be a little bit more relativist in the way that Jason was outlining earlier. Mm -hmm. And so that's what makes me bristle 
at the question, what's your philosophy? I want to know what the question is, and then I can tell you what my philosophy is. Can I just also add this other point? This is kind of going back to my stew example. As important as the ingredients that go in the stew are the ingredients that are left out. And I think Mm -hmm. that I can sometimes describe my philosophy much better by saying what I don't believe. I don't believe Mm -hmm. in souls. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't really believe in gods. You know, those kinds of things. Or what I could take or leave. Like, I have no stake in the question of being in itself. Like, I just don't care. You know, it's like salad dressing on the side, please. I don't care. You know, I don't care. I often think that it is as helpful when I'm talking to somebody or when I'm explaining myself to someone to say what I'm not than it is to say what I am or say what I don't believe as opposed to what I do believe. I'm just trying to imagine a philosophy with a little bit of being on the side. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, what is it? Is it cilantro that a certain part of the population just tastes like soap or something? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like there are some things that would never go in my stew ever. Like it's just great. You know, I'm like, no, thank you. Nietzsche is my cilantro. (laughs) Ayn Rand is my cilantro. No, Ayn Ayn Rand is my pickled herring. Like, I don't even want it on the side. What Anne Rand is to me, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, if I had a food allergy, it'd be it, but I have no food allergies that I know of. If I had something that made me throw up, that would be what Anne Rand is to me. <laughs> <laughs> or break out in hives. I want to repeat something that I said, I think, on our History of Philosophy episode. It haunts me, and it's kind of relevant here, that a colleague of mine, she's a historian, she said that philosophers today seem to have a relationship to philosophy like art historians have to art. Mm. You know, it's all been done, and we just sort of classify and trace. And I think that's wrong. I think that it's more like the relationship that artists have art in the sense that if you were to go out and paint today you could not paint with very visible colors showing the brush strokes i'm sorry i'm trying to describe impressionism but i'm not an art <laughs> but you know you couldn't just go out and do that you couldn't just do impressionism again unless you had some new take on it like it goes back to rick's point you can't reinvent the wheel right, right? an artist today has to be informed about what's happened in the history of art and understand their intervention based on that. I mean, if you want to paint for a dentist's office, you could still go out and do your impressionist paintings of whatever. But unless you're going to do something new with an awareness of the existing history, you're not really making art. And Mm -hmm. I feel the same way here is that we are aware and intervening. And also, because this comes up sometimes, people hear about your philosophical influences. They often think you just think philosopher X is right about everything. Mm -hmm. And I always say, like, if I ever read a philosophical text that I thought answered and resolved everything – I wouldn't know what to do anymore. Yeah, I'd be right. like, I'm done. <laughs> and to some extent, I feel like that's also an impossibility because as Rick was saying earlier, the world is continuously changing. New problems are constantly emerging. So even if there was a text that resolved everything, it would probably have a short shelf life and there'd be more work to do later on. I always think of the philosophers I'm influenced by as the philosophers who have set up some of the questions that I think are worth asking. You know, going back to Lee's point, 
I just don't think Heidegger's question about being and beings, like, I don't think that's an interesting question yeah. at all. Yeah. But I do think a question that Marx asks about how our economic mature relations shape and inform how we think about the world, that's a very interesting question mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think Marx totally solved it, but I do think that he asked the question, and it's a question that is still worth asking again and again. So, Can I ask a huge question that I think we need to address on this question of having a philosophy? And that is, do you think it's important that someone has a philosophy? Like, I suppose I think everyone has an implicit philosophy. Mm-hmm. And maybe, Jason, you're right that often we don't have an inventory of this. And so it's probably best that we reflect on that baggage we have and take an inventory of it. But I'm wondering, is it important that one have a philosophy? Because, sorry, Lee, I could imagine some reasons why it would be important. And I can imagine some reasons why it wouldn't be important. (laughs) Well, I'll take a stab at this. I do think that everyone does have a philosophy. What distinguishes professional philosophers, we'll say, from everyone else is that we understand that we need to be able to articulate what that is. And we have a long history of other thinkers to help us sort through the categories of our philosophy. What worries me about the lack of philosophical practice that most people get to engage in over the course of a lifetime, you know, what maybe they have a philosophy class in college or whatever, But the lack of that practice leaves people ill-equipped to understand their own philosophy, understand their Mm. own beliefs and values and commitments. And not being able to understand them often means not being able to understand when they are in conflict just internally, right? You have conflicting beliefs or inconsistent beliefs and also not be able to articulate very well when your beliefs are in conflict with someone else. Then it just becomes, well, you know, what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. And we did a whole episode on that shit. (laughs) But yeah, I do think that everyone has a philosophy and yeah, I think it's important to have a philosophy. I don't know how you could live in the world and not have a philosophy. But some of those philosophies are more or less coherent, right? As you were pointing out out. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have philosophies that under the barest minimal pressure will show contradictions and they can't bear the weight of even a few questions. I also think, you know, if one is a relativist, okay, God love you, but I want you not to be an accidental relativist. (laughs) I want you to be a relativist on purpose. And I would go so far as to say that If you start reflecting on your relativism, you're not going to be a lazy relativist. Mm -hmm. You might be some other kind of relativist, but you're not going to be a lazy relativist. We all do have a philosophy, and what I think is important is that we all, first of all, be given the time and space to reflect on it. And we get exposure to some of the ways of honing our tools for that reflection on our philosophy. Yeah, you know, I tell my students in just intro classes all the time, right at the beginning of a chorus, when we're trying to ask the question, well, what is philosophy? Well, you know, people will say all the time, my philosophy of barbecue is et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And, you know, and I'm like, that is not a philosophy. Now, I actually don't believe that's true. I do believe in some cases that is a philosophy, that people can have a philosophy of 
barbecue, right? It's something that they've thought about, that they can defend, they can articulate, and that has given them some wisdom about that topic that they love, just to go back to what the word philosophy means. So that is a pretty consistent lie that I tell my students every semester in intro classes that that's not a philosophy. But I do think as you were saying, when you're just honing the tools at the beginning, you need to separate that out like anything I believe is a philosophy. This is the thing I think we all probably would agree that we're constantly battling is the difference between philosophy and some random shit you believe. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. I've come to see that we all agree with Gramsci. (laughs) Everyone is a philosopher. Lee pointed out earlier that many people believe contradictory things, and that leads me to the question— does a philosophy have to be entirely consistent? And do you think your philosophy is entirely consistent? Well, since I only have one hand, I'll take this question. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that consistency and internal coherence is hugely important in developing a set of values and beliefs and, you know, a philosophy. I don't think it's possible to have no internal contradictions. I think that in many ways, part of what motivates me to keep thinking about things and to keep pursuing wisdom, just to use the technical term, is that I feel these tensions. I feel tensions like I don't want to believe this, but I know somewhere deep down in there, I still really do. Mm. How do I write that with other beliefs that I can articulate and that I can explain? So yeah, I do think consistency is really important. I think that Often inconsistencies are a consequence of laziness, you know, just not putting the time in to think and to read and to talk with people. But sometimes it's just you can't quite write the ship on a couple of things. One of the main issues in the first May Day here in Chicago was the eight-hour working day. And the reason they wanted an eight-hour working day was precisely what you said. They wanted to have the time to be able to reflect. Mm. And some of them went so far as to say, we want to have the time to develop a philosophical approach to the conditions in which we find ourselves, the Mm. economic conditions, the social conditions, and this issue of pressing for time to develop and reflect on one's outlook on the world and the way one theoretically approaches the world was really crucial for the early labor movement in the United States. And Mm -hmm. so I agree with you that consistency is one of the issues there, right? They wanted to have the time to make sure, well, look, if I'm fighting against the owners of the companies, is that consistent with my belief in capitalism, for example? How could I reconcile those? And which one am I willing to give up? And which one am I more committed to? These are all ways of pursuing 
wisdom, which could be another translation of the word philosophy, right? The pursuing mm-hmm. of wisdom, not necessarily the having of it. Mm-hmm. Although I will say that sometimes I feel like we have consistencies that we don't see. Like, to go back to the beginning of this episode, I don't think I ever would have seen myself as a moral relativist because of these concerns with political and social relations of power and so on. I'm not sure I would have picked that up. But once I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes total <laughs> yeah. sense. And I feel like sometimes even philosophers who have gone to great lengths to be systematic both don't see the tensions and contradictions they produce, and they also don't see the consistencies which may be other than the consistencies that they think they're putting forward. Right. Like they think their system is about X, but they actually might be more consistent about some other matter. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying about dialogue and discussion. Sometimes we need other people to point out that we're always saying on one hand and then on the other <laughs> hand, because we don't always see it. We just do it. And because it's so second nature, someone else is like, there you go with the hands again. <laughs> and it becomes more apparent. So I do think that there's a certain sense in which, on the one hand, the idea of being systematic in the sense of I'm putting forth my great system of X, I just did it, didn't you I? Did. <laughs> <laughs> you did. We're trying not to laugh. I couldn't, I couldn't not laugh. <laughs> so, like, on the one hand, I think that I'm just going to go with it. Like, on the one hand, having a, like, this is my great system of X seems, as Rick was saying earlier, a horribly antiquated idea of philosophy. But on the other hand, <laughs> the idea that one could dispense with systems entirely and think entirely afresh and anew, treating every situation as a new situation without drawing on existing conceptualizations and problems seems equally problematic. So I think to some extent extent, one ends up being systematic even when one doesn't want to be systematic. And I think that goes back to the point that Lee originally made, because I think there are two important reasons why consistency matters. The first one that we haven't mentioned so far is that we rely on one another to a large extent in ways that we don't often contemplate. Mm-hmm. I don't know about y'all, but I don't make my own electricity. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> cart away my own trash mm-hmm. and so on. And we rely on one another. And part of being reliable to others is that they can count on a certain kind of consistency in me. And mm-hmm. so I think there's let's call that an ethical or a moral demand for consistency, which goes hand in hand with a certain moral demand for truthfulness as well. And then the other issue is the one that I think we've already discussed, namely that it's important for an individual to at least ask the question, if I believe that Christianity is true And I also believe that I should load a plane full of people who immigrated to the United States and send them to the Archdiocese of Sacramento. These two beliefs seem at the very least in tension with one another, (laughs) if not an out-and-out contradiction. And there you can again see what fruit could be borne by someone who would hold those two beliefs at the same time. Ron DeSantis, <laughs> to reflect on whether they can, in fact, be held at the same time. Yeah, if I could just pick up on your point about how much we are reliant on one another, how interconnected we are just as the kinds of animals that we are. This is maybe my one reservation about saying that 
I have a philosophy or you have a philosophy or Kant had a philosophy, because obviously we can only think, we can only express ourselves in cooperation with other people. We're always being shaped by the thoughts and actions and beliefs and philosophies of other people. You know, I don't know that there would be philosophy on an island, like if you were alone on an island. I don't know that you could have a philosophy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that to some extent, the way in which we end up grouping ourselves and thinking of ourselves in terms of different schools or whatever reflects an important point that no one thinks alone. We all think in and through borrowed concepts. And once again, going back to the Gramsci quote, the difference here is trying to recognize one's debts and recognize where those concepts come from. And also, you know, sometimes recognizing that some of the concepts that are very interesting and useful come with a huge burden of racism, patriarchy, etc. And one of the big questions, and a worthwhile question, is how much has the bad part infused the other part? You know, it's about the two hands. The two hands are still on the same body. (laughs) And so they're connected. Yeah. It's the whole, does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? Right. And I think we often lose sight of the ways in which Maybe at its origin in the West, philosophy developed pretty much by humans asking one another, why'd you do that? (laughs) And in order for me to develop a response, I have to get out of that practical situation and say, okay, if I think about it, this is what I was trying to do. And then the next question immediately follows. Well, is that a good thing to try to do? Mm -hmm. And then ultimately that is embedded in the question of what is it to lead a good life or what is it to live well? And I think that because we often move away from the practical into the theoretical so quickly, even philosophers who are interested in moral philosophy philosophy or other practical philosophies, because we lose touch with that practical origin, we lose touch also with the way in which philosophy is born out of this interconnection we have with one another. And the question like, why'd you do that? So I think another part of our philosophy as a podcast is that philosophy shouldn't just be accessible to only those people who could take university classes and pay for them and so on and have tons of time to read. And one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is bring philosophy to everyone. But we can't do that on our own and we need your help. So we're always looking for sponsors on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Hotel Bar Sessions, where you can support us at multiple different levels because we are all in this thing together. (laughs) And we are all supporting each other to develop our own particular and our own combined way of thinking about the world and our place in it. I think one of the things that is most moving to me and that I actually cherish is the number of our actual patrons who are not in the profession. They're not philosophers. Mm -hmm. And not only do they listen and find what we have to say somehow helpful or funny or whatever, enjoyable, but then they go the extra mile and support us. I'm honored by that. And I try to honor you back in return. 
Yeah, I just want to echo Rick and Jason's point there that we really do appreciate you listeners. We appreciate, especially those of you who support us financially, but, you know, even just following us on Twitter or on YouTube or any of our other platforms, all of that really helps. And we really appreciate that. I see that the bartender is giving us last call, but I don't want to get out of here on the 100th episode without also saying how much I appreciate my co-hosts, Jason and Rick. This is one of my favorite parts of every week. I really can't believe that we've done 100 episodes. I thought that at some point we would run out of ideas, but we don't. We just keep finding things to talk about. And I absolutely love this and I love doing it with you guys and looking forward to the next 100. I also don't want to end our celebration of our 100th episode without acknowledging that This means that Lee has edited a hundred (laughs) episodes. Lee has produced a hundred episodes. I want those six months of my life back. No, just kidding. (laughs) Lee has put in a hundred hours for each episode, and we wouldn't be here at a hundred. We wouldn't be centarians. Is that the word? I think so. We wouldn't be centarians without Lee. And I want to echo, this is the favorite part of my week, getting together with the two of you to talk about... Both of your hands. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to say that it's appropriate in the 100th episode that I busted up three times in which I couldn't even get a word out of my mouth. So thank you both for that. I want to thank our co-hosts as well. It's been great fun. I also want to thank all of our various guests that we've had come on yeah, and future guests as well. It's great to bring other people in and check out their hands, see what <laughs> hands they've been dealt. Uh, and I can't believe you said 100 hours for every episode without making a metric system joke in there. You know, 100 episodes, 100 hours for every episode. That seems like a, uh, what is that, a, a decasode or something like that? <laughs> Well, guys, I called us a lift earlier, and it looks like it's 100 meters away. So (laughs) I want you to take all four of your hands and come with me. And I'll see you guys next time. Uh, Is he going to make it? I need to stop. (laughs) 